Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Happy 2023. I've done almost 2,000 interviews on my program with all different types of healers who provide a multi-sensory and non-Western pedagogy in their practices. Their stories help to complete that circle of artistic, artistic authenticity which we all strive for. The cats I interview have been making a living on the bandstand for the last half century. They have dealt with good leadership and bad. They have come to different understandings of what love is. They have overcome a lot of adversity in their lives, and they are adept at playing all musics. For me, nowadays, labels and names have really gotten in the way of our ability to create communal spiritual music. The bean counters want a pigeonhole and brand music. The Cats have had an impact on so many records that my generation and older generations have lived off for years. They play little parts and serve the song as conduits for information from the heavens. For the most part, the Cats had a chance to play with the original masters of the music and learn to get out of their own way to become part of the musical conversation. One thing I've realized and been humbled by is the opportunity that has been given to me to gain knowledge and wisdom from the musicians whose tales I share with people in all parts of the world via the internet. Call it mass distance education, if you will. I have the opportunity to talk with individuals who have been on this earth longer than myself, have experienced societal shifts, and have invented and reinvented themselves in different musical settings in different parts of the country. Thankfully, when the record business was actually an industry, these artists had the opportunity to gain name recognition through their work as accompanists and leaders by weaving in and out of different musical styles. As a rogue journalist, I'm searching for that fine line of connection from mind to body to soul. That's where the spirit emerges and what my whole show is about, how to create spiritual music. Mike Richmond, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you for having me back. You know, um, I just wanted to ask you about when you kind of got the memo about being a human being insofar as did your mentors teach you what not to do or did your mentors primarily teach you to give back? That's what I mean by getting the memo. That's a very uh, important question. You know, I learned quite a bit from observation and my first primary teacher on the string base was somebody named Ed Arian and he was in the Philadelphia Orchestra. And I used to see him play, I guess, from junior high school, high school, and through college when I studied with him. And I learned by watching, I still call him Mr. Arian, Mr. Arian <laughs> play in the Philly Orchestra. Right. And, and he became my teacher, I guess, starting in 1965, my classical teacher. And through... Uh, what he had taught me at our lessons, musically, and from watching him play with the Philly Orchestra, that was the way to get in touch with a more spiritual viewpoint of mm -hmm. playing music. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Uh, Explain, go deeper on that. I, I mean, you're talking about symphonic music and getting to the spirit, not that it's not... Uh, so talk, go deeper on that. Well, uh, at the same time, I was watching and Arian play with the Philly Orchestra, I was checking out jazz groups through high school and college, which was early 60s, late 60s. Were you allowed into peps? I wasn't allowed, but well, it's funny you mention that, because um, at peps, 
you know about that? Well, I've interviewed, you know, Mike Knock, and, you know, I know, I mean, I'm just curious about local cats, if they got to know you, if you were allowed in there, if you were underage. Yeah, in Pennsylvania, uh, you had to be 21. Right. But what you would do is, Peps was on Broad Street, south of the market, a few blocks, and uh, what you would do is you would stand outside the door, and once in a while, you know, somebody would come out of the club, and you get a chance to see all the cats play for 15 or 20 seconds. I love that, dude. <laughs> You're getting every single second. I love it, man. Well, you know. Yeah, I dig. For 15 or 20 seconds. So I got a chance to see Cannonball and all the cats, but only for 15 or 20 second snippets. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully they weren't on a set break, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I got a chance to see a lot of the great bands like that. And then one time around the corner from there, um, on one bar in Broad Street, forget the name of the club. Anyway, there was another club, and somebody snuck me out of the club. This was 1965 or 6 or 7. What, like the showboat or something? Exactly, the showboat. Yeah. Exactly. And and I got a chance to see Miles in the quintet. Wow! Uh, wow! Uh, oh, that's sick! Yeah. Really yeah, I wasn't really allowed to be in there, but somebody, <laughs> uh, a friend of mine, and once in a while somebody would sneak me into a club and they put you in the back row and you try to be invisible and you check out the cats. Um, and through Philadelphia too, they had jazz festivals going through town. So Count Basie, Duke, Maynard, all the cats would. A lot of the big bands would come through town. And there was a place in South Jersey near Trenton somewhere hmm. called the, the Barn Art Center. Wow. That was near, it was, I think it was across the river from New Hope, Pennsylvania. And it was a barn art center. It was an art center in a barn. Very hip. And I got a chance to see Dave Rubeck there and I think Jimmy Smith. I checked Jimmy Smith out. Wait, wait, it was like in, they had a they had a, like a stage in the barn to play. Exactly, exactly. Wow, wow. And you only had to be eight. So you, I mean, were, were you you were getting the best of all musical worlds, and that just sort of sunk, it sunk in at an early age. The connection to spirit in the music. Hundred percent, and uh, and once in a while you get a chance to talk with the band members after the gig. And uh, right. I think this was 64, 65. Uh, so a Dave Rubeck, you know, concert with uh, the quartet. And Eugene Wright was playing bass, and I went over to him after the gig. <laughs> I did. Oh, man. I asked him how I could become, you know, a great bass player like him. And he said, son, study with the bow for 10 years. Then asked me to learn, asked me how to play jazz. Dude, I'm going to send you, it's so beautiful, I do, I'm going to send you my interview with Eugene, it, it was so legendary, the dude was such an old school cat, back in the days of Chicago, playing with all those greats, man, I mean, he was a classic, I can't even, uh, I mean, I, I wonder as a journalist if I'd be hip enough to even know that this was the hip stuff, I, I, I questioned, I wasn't around, so I don't know. I'd like to think that I'd, I'd have my no ear to the to the pace, so to speak. But the other thing, I, so I just, I mean, like, were you stuck? Because like, you were, you were, you were, you know, Jimmy was, t you know, you're getting lessons with Jimmy and you were playing. 
But in the, were you into like John Vincent string quartets? I'm just curious about the types of classical music that you thought were forward thinking, like the same stuff that was going on with, with Miles and at the plug nickel and stuff. What was that in classical for you? Well, at the same at the same time in Philadelphia, which was a more classically traditional sound, mm. Eugene Normandy was the conductor of the Philly Orchestra, wow. and for the most part, they didn't play music past the eighteen nineties, nineteen hundred. Once in a while, they venture into something new, but it was pretty traditional. So I liked that. I thought that I thought that was beautiful. Um, my friends and myself out of school. I went to Temple University when we weren't in school. We were listening to even more Stravinsky-esque-type music, a little more modern music. It could have been... Like Lucas uh, Lucas Foss or like... Uh, I'm looking at all these avant-garde... I'm just curious about the, cla- the what you thought was... I mean, outside of, obviously... Did you do any kind of classical... Um, once your career came along, were you... Did you did you take gigs like during the year? Maybe you still do, where you're you're doing not just jazz, but you're also doing classical gigs. Hundred percent, hundred percent. My my teacher uh, would recommend me for gigs that he couldn't do, and uh, I would sub for him in various orchestras around Philadelphia. And then, as a matter of fact, uh, about I don't know five, six, seven years ago, I did a gig. Um, anyway, I had this recording. You know, that I was doing as a jazz bass player. Right. And string section was a good part of the Philly Orchestra and part of the New York Phil. So I told the first bass player, I think his name was in the string section in the studio. I'm pretty sure it was Hal Robinson, who was the first bass player in the Philly Orchestra. And I said, one of my goals was to be in the Philly Orchestra growing up. And I said, it's funny that here I am taking solos <laughs> you guys are in the background. Yeah. Because I, I just wanted to be a sideman. And, um, was Hal Robinson like your elder? It was about my age. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Probably even younger. Um, That's funny. And over the, over the years, too, I started playing cello over 20 years ago, about 22, 23 years ago, and got pretty involved in it. And the group that I played in was traveling around the world soloing in front of different orchestras. We had a small group, and there are arrangements with full orchestras. So. You know, dude, I would do... I, that's the kind of show I want. I would pay to see. That's freaking amazing. I don't know where that concept has gone. Well, I, maybe it's still... I'm sure it's still happening on some level. I'm not that hip to it, but the fact that that you took... That just makes sense. Well, it was beautiful. You know, the arrangements were great, and uh, the tunes were great. And I got a chance to sit in front of an orchestra, but this time, you know, I've, I've done it many times. Just, uh, now it's on cello. And, uh, right, that's although, right. Although I'm still playing string days quite a bit. Uh, I want to go back to the Eugene Wright thing. To a layperson who listened to this in 50 years, what did he mean by playing bow for 10 years in jazz and get, and then tell, or play the bow for 10, 10 years and then come back and ask me if you can play jazz, how, if you can so play? Kind of play the bass technically correct and in tune. You know, the majority of uh, jazz bass players, younger people are more proficient, but the older guys really didn't study with the bow that much, uh, except Angus and a few other people. Uh, the originators, PC, you know, great with 
Sure. What about Milt Hinton? Milt didn't play much with the Bell. Milt is the man. Dude. I'm sorry, man. I, I love that cat, dude. Well, Milt. Yeah, I mean, no, no, he's a legend. And you, uh, so the bow, the bow was, but so Mingus, what a, like Wilbur Ware or not Wilbur so. Wilbur was more of a pizzicato kind of guy. Ron Carter too was a real Argo person. Right. You know? Oh yeah. Same with Stafford James. Uh, yeah, but but Ron was uh, younger than the people I'm thinking with because Ron was late fifties and early sixties. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So so before Mingus, who was a prolific bow uh, bass player? Uh, Slam Stewart in the late 30s. Slam? Wow. Slam Stewart. That's badass. Well, he was slamming. (laughs) Wait, was he... Okay, so is it fair to say that he might have been the forerunner of modern jazz string bass, or is that too too far? Well, not not modern jazz string bass, but playing those great Arco solos that he did that were technically proficient with his left hand also, very in tune. Um, wow. So mind-blowing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Slam Stewart. You should check some of those old... I, I, if you, you can hit me to, to some of your favorite stuff. I, I mean, honestly, I'd love to hear... It sounds like new vocabulary was taking place at that time, at least in the rhythm, rhythm section was set in the table. I'm not sure if he had, like, a regular trap... Uh, uh, you know, mate, where, that he played with drums all the time, but um, you know, it's it's. Well, he had a, a very infamous duo at the time with uh, Slim Gillard on guitar. Oh, it was guitar bass. Yeah, I love that stuff, dude. This is like late '30s, early '40s, and they had a band. Even though it was only a duo, their band was called Slim and Slam. <laughs> I, okay, so you're open to me. I got to check this. Did you know this cat, Bill Takis? I knew, I knew who it was. I didn't know him personally. Yeah, no, I was just, because he was in that Bob, Bob DeRoe just shot into my mind, too. Um, when did you, you, how old were you when you asked Eugene that question? Excuse me, say it again, please. How, how old were you when you, when you went up to Senator Eugene Wright and asked him that question? Were you a teenager? 16 or 17. And, like, did you have a, so... Did you take his advice, or was it something that maybe over time you just learned it when the... the... 100%. Uh, I applied to a classical conservatory, was accepted, and studied classical bass for many years. But at the same time, I was always a jazz player, and I love Motown music, so I played, you know, all those tunes, too, an electric bass, and, and uh, so I was into a lot of other music besides jazz. But I definitely studied with the bow, I still practice every day with the bow, and, and uh, you know, it was, it was a pretty big deal. But, you know, going back to the spirituality of it, yeah. after I got out of school, which was 1970, I started studying with Jimmy Garrison, and, you know, having lessons with Jimmy each week and playing duo with him was extremely spiritual, and uh, not only what he told me, at his place during my lessons, but I would go to his gigs after my lesson, lessons. And he, at that time, he had a trio with Joe Farrell and Elvin Jones, and I used to go to their gigs downtown. And yeah, I mean, because that's the, that album, I've been putting it together. I've been, I'm like, I, I kind of, it was almost too, I didn't, I could not totally get my ear around it. But if that was being played live, I know Tabakin would sub sometimes, but like, that's just 
burning stuff. Like to be able to go to those gigs and see the remnants of, of I mean, you know, whatever they said about Joe Farrell, they 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 basically said he was the next Coltrane. There's a daunting uh, assignment, but the dude was amazing. I mean that, and and so, um, how did you keep both feet on the ground at that time? I mean, ultimately, how did you get, like? Get out of your own way, not let your ego get involved, you know, or or in, as best you could. I mean, everyone's ego gets involved one way or the other. You mean uh, after? I mean, the I idea put- of like at that age, like, um, just I guess going back to the original question, like the idea of always being a conduit, but also like. I don't know, for me, like, the light that I shine back on people, whether it's at a live show or in interviews, it's like, it's important for me to share it and get it out of my system, because if it's too pent up, I don't feel so great. And I just wonder if you've always been a sharing person, or whether you learned that from those guys. Well, uh, I'm like that myself as a teacher, 100%, and... I learned that from from my teachers too, from uh, Ed Arian, from Jimmy Garrison, hundred percent. Because uh, when, especially with Jimmy, when uh, I had my lessons each week, we would play duo, and he didn't play any differently with me than he played with Trey. So you felt that spirit coming through him and his bass, and it lifted you closer to where he was at. And each week was a pretty heavy. Experience spiritual experience. Well, can you talk about like this, when you say the same way he played with Train, you mean like the same kind of, you know, uh, urgency, uh, tempo? What are the, what are the aesthetics of that? Well, I mean, as opposed to just sort of, you know. The intensity that he had when he played with Train and Alice and all the people that he worked with. Wow. He would bring that to my lesson. Wow. Well, I really had to pick it up a few notches when we played duo each week. I really had a you know, come closer to him because, uh, you know, I was younger than him and I hadn't played like that before. And now I'm playing with somebody that, play, and I used to, and I saw him play with Trey, you know, and, uh, and here I am playing with him. And, uh, yeah, he definitely picked, picked it up a few notches for me, 100%. And then I would go to his gigs after the lesson and watch him with Alvin and Joe, and he was working with Alice at the time. Alice Coltrane. Wow. So I go to her gigs and get a chance to hang out with the band a little bit. And just being around those, those personalities, you know, it would be like hanging out with Jesus after he gave a speech on the side of a mountain. Well, what I, what I can't fathom is that it, this happened like dozens of times or maybe hundreds of times. I don't know. I mean, that, the, 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 the quantity of it is, is as important, as impressive as the quality. One time would have been enough. I did it all the time. Yeah, I did it all the time. From the end of high school, and even after I got to New York in the early 70s and was on the scene and I was doing gigs myself, I still checked out quite a few people that I admired. And uh, as a matter of fact, I'll just tell you a funny story about that. Uh, keeping in mind, I grew up with 50s rock and roll from the original rock and roll. And I still love that music. One time... I guess the early 80s, I was playing at a jazz blues festival in London with the Mingus band, with the Mingus Dynasty band. Mm. And in another tent on the premises, Chuck Berry was playing. So on our break, of course I was going to check Chuck Berry. How 
marketing this show. Absolutely. Dude, the man was so accessible to even the generation before before yours. Go ahead, continue. Oh, great. It was yeah. great. So on my break with the Mingus band, I ran over to see uh, one of Chuck Berry's sets. And I felt, you know, I didn't feel that much differently about that when I saw Miles or Train or Brubeck or, you know, good band is a good band. And uh, so I did that even when, after I was in the scene doing nice gigs. I would check out people that I admired quite a bit in all types of music. 100%. The, I still like them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm talking to Mike Richmond here on the Jake Feinberg Show. Um, you know, I need to ask you about this. I just saw this, and I, it kind of blew my mind, and I've never actually come across the compilation, but it's... Uh, I need you to talk about how it all came together with Chico Hamilton at Montro in 73. Well, I'll back that up just a few Please, weeks. Yeah, back it up, because you know what? That was the most, every, I know, I, 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 yeah, he was on Blue Note. Blue Note was recording the entire thing. It's all these really interesting co- combinations of musicians that don't normally work together. But when I saw you with Chico, I was like, all right, I need Mike to break this down. that, I guess five or six, seven months before that, somebody called me up to do a jam session in New York, and at the jam session was John Abercrombie. So I think this was right after Christmas in 72 or early 73. And um, and I, you know, it was a nice, nice session with John, and, and the next day, I got a, next morning, I actually, I got a call from Chico. And he said, uh, I heard you, and John had just left Chico's band wow. right around that time. And Chico was starting a new band, and, and uh, he asked John, you know any bass players? And he said, yeah, I just played with this guy last night. He just got to town. So Chico called in the early... Uh, this early was, wait, hold on, you had just moved to New York? I had just gotten to New York. That's uh, oh, so oh, classic. That's where Wavy Gravy did stand up. It turned into a jazz club later. Well, there was once in a while they had jazz. Oh, that's wait. I just want to be clear: were you playing electric or upright? Uh, both, both. Because wow. every jazz group at that time you had to play both bases. I, I mean, Putter Smith told me that around that well, a little bit, yeah, a little. That's so interesting. It was during that time because Putter went down to a Woody Herman gig in 74 with his upright, and, and the guys were like, what do you, what do you got that for? Go get your... At a certain point, th- then it became only electric bass, but that was a few years after that. 
know, um, whether it was the big bands, you know, I did Woody's gig for a while, too, and yeah. half, half the tunes were electric, half the tunes were string. Hmm. And uh, anyway, so, uh, so we said we had the gig at the Gaslight, and I thought, that's crazy, because the week before that, I had seen Weather Report there. No, wait, show. Weather Report played the Gaslight Theater? That's they, they weren't playing concerts yet. They were playing little clubs. Wow. And that was... Uh, you know, a while, while after that first record came out, Weather Report, the first record. Was Eric was Eric Gravatt playing drums? That was Alphonse Muzan was playing drums. And, and, and Miroslav. Miroslav. Wow. Uh, uh, so sick. Yeah. <laughs> and anyway, so I thought, that's crazy, because I just saw Weather Report there, who invented a new style of playing music completely, you know, a lot looser than it had been before that. And... Uh, so he played the gig there, and he said, okay, a few days later we had a gig at the uh, Village Gate, the top of the gate, opening up for Mingus. Mingus is then, and I think that was February of 73. Yeah. And Charles was one of my main cats. I loved Charles, you know. And I used to see, see him play when I was in college in the 60s. And so here I am opening up for Mingus, and, uh, which I thought was pretty hip. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, how old were you? I was 24. Yeah, I mean, that was your first gig, and you thought you were going to just go into some orchestra and settle in somewhere. (laughs) And it's like, no, actually, you're going to open for Mangus. You're here. The whole thing happened, Stan, so it was a complete accident. And, uh, well, although I have to say, it's not an accident when you practice 10 hours a day. No, there are no coincidences. This is uh, luck is the residue of design, as Branch Rickey said. So, Go ahead. As a matter of fact, so we're facing the audience, and the stage door was to the left of the stage, you know, facing the audience. And Mingus was watching me the whole time, keeping in mind, he's one of my main cats. <laughs> uh, so I thought, you know, this is crazy. You know, Charles is checking me out. After all the times I, I had so many of his records and saw him play. And uh, so we came up on the band. Anyway, so we came up on the bandstand and set up after our set. And he gave me kind of a thumbs up and an okay, it was an okay. And I wanted to talk to him, but I didn't know what to say, so the only thing I could think of saying was, Mr. Mingus, would you like to use my amp? Because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what else to say. That sounds fine, it being generous, yeah. And, and, but he was really nice, and he was very uh, thumbs up about my performance. And the next day, actually, in the New York Times, there was a big review of that night. Wow. And uh, I think I still have it in my basement. And it said, uh, the new Charles Mingus is in town. You know, and they, were, they gave me a real nice review. Wow. Uh, did you, did have, you, did you must, I mean, did you come with a reputation from Philadelphia? Not at all. Not at all. Not at uh, all. But then, I mean, just. Uh, yeah. me into moving into New York. Uh, I didn't really want to live in New York, but. Uh, somebody talked me into moving there. And even after I moved there, I stayed in my apartment. I stayed in my apartment for the most part, just practicing. And, uh, you know, I had no intention at all about doing any of that. Uh, so the Abercrombie, the Abercrombie thing was a just cosmic, uh, t- divine timing of sorts. Yes, completely. Wow. Uh, I didn't wow. know John. And uh, we hit it off that night. He recommended me for, uh, you know, Chico's gig. And then I guess within a couple of years of that, he 
and a saxophone player, Alex Foster, recommended me for Jack DeJeanette's band. So then I started doing that gig for a few years from 75. What was, what was the experience like in Montreux with, I mean, that band had not, only had a couple gigs together, right? Well, yeah, we only played that spring a little bit, then we were in Montreux, and it wasn't just the gig itself, we were, that night in Montreux, uh, we were on the bill with McCoy and Miles, so that was July of 73, so I got a chance to, you know, uh, watch McCoy's band, and you mentioned Stafford James. I think Stafford was playing with uh, McCoy at that time. Wow. And, uh, and Miles, you know, Miles' band. So Who was, was in, fun. I mean, the Miles' band in 73 was like M. Tume? Well, I know Al Foster was playing drums. Right. Wow. Uh, wow. Maybe. Was Michael Henderson playing bass? Michael Henderson was playing. What did you think? Please talk about the late, great Michael Henderson. I mean, that dude was, I'm just curious, because he was kind of your peer almost. Yeah, I love Michael Henderson. Uh, yeah, uh, I didn't know him. I, I worked opposite him a few times, got a chance to hang out with him, but his blue was, you know, you know, he reminded me of, on the electric bass, his strength, the width of his beat, he had a very wide beat, uh, and just his presence as a bass player reminded me a lot of Jimmy, you know, who had a different style completely, but it was that deep groove. Right, like, right. Deep groove. Um, and sort of like his, his like, the way, where he placed the notes, it was always like, uh, there was always an imp emotional impact. Emotional, but he had a wide beat. Right, right, right. He had a wide beat or a short beat. He had a really long beat. You know, like an Elvin Jones to Jack DeJeanette kind of beat. Totally, totally, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't only the gig at Montreux. It was getting a chance to hang out in the dressing room with the cats. So, know? like, Larry Klein told me one time, like, the greatest freaking story about Freddie Hubbard, like, in this sort of Curtis Mayfield kind of super fly scene backstage. He's the only white cat. <laughs> and he, I forget what he said, but he's, he just felt like he needed to sort of get involved. And he said something and everyone sort of just looked at him like, what, you know, why are you talking? And everybody went back to their thing. And then Freddie went over and like, just sort of put a fist out and just was like, the message that came through was like, you don't have to say anything. You know, if you have something to say, say it, otherwise don't speak. But, I mean, just in general, like, that was more a social scene, but you felt like the cats in general, you were able to hang with them, and they, and 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 uh, there was no real, I'm talking about Miles and stuff. I mean, you're in the dressing room with Miles. Like, I mean, Miles dissed Randy Brecker the first time he saw him and then made up with him like 10 minutes later. But I'm just curious about, you know, the, the genuine, it was a genuine rapport. I didn't say too much. <laughs> yeah, exactly, dude. That's what Larry, Larry, exactly. I, I would have not known what to say, man. Well, you know, it was better just to listen. Right, 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 right. Wow. What a, what a profound lesson in today's world, man. It's better to listen, man. Well, you know, if, um, if God wanted us to, you know, 
be like that, you would have two mouths in one ear. <laughs> Absolutely. I love you know, that. I love that line. Yeah, it's true. I, I get it. I just listen. I I knew I was around those type of people, and it was better just to see what they had to say. And uh, you know, I was a young guy just starting off, so I didn't really feel felt like I could contribute as much to the conversation as they could. So uh, absolutely, uh, yeah. absolutely correct. I think it's really, really insightful stuff. Um, ultimately. Um, when you talk about um, what do you think that in your mind, like how do you try to, do you, do you continue to practice relentlessly every day to be able to, to stay in the moment and be here now? Well, you know, what I do actually when I practice, um, both on shallow and base, is I'll pick a set of changes and try to find the most melodic lines I can over those chords. So I, I practice finding melodies. I'm just searching for melodies. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's very technical. Sometimes I'm just trying to find beautiful, beautiful melodies not that much different than what Bach was trying to do 300 years ago. You know, I'm just trying to find melodies in the universe and put it on the instrument. And so that's what I practice. It's not so much a technical thing, unless somebody gives me music that I have to play very technically on or I have to read some music down, I'll practice a part. But I'm just trying to find melodies, searching for melodies. So that's what I practice. I, uh, actually, I a little bit every day I try to play some of the uh, Bach inventions. Yes. And, and uh, I'm just trying to find the melodies that he was searching for. I'm not comparing myself to him, but, you know, melodies are melodies. So I try to find some influences like that. And uh, so I, I do that quite a few hours a day. Sometimes it could be technical. Sometimes, for the most part, it's not very technical. But it doesn't encompass the whole instrument from the very bottom to the very top. And that's one thing classical studies gave me, was learning how to play the whole instrument the very lowest note to the very highest note in tune. That's what classical studies do for you. Right, right, which is actually incredibly important. Um, yeah, very important, yeah. When, when you saw, you, you played the, that Gaslight Theater, I mean, before, that was like the earliest weather report. Um, they had a lead, they did not have guitar as a lead instrument, it was the horn. Um, but in, as they grew along in the 70s, they became kind of, a, I think, much sonically much louder. Like, they could have never played a place like the Gaslight. And I'm just wondering, like, what, like the Fourth Way was around with Ron McClure. Those guys actually preceded Weather Report. But I kind of wanted you to just talk about the infancy of that band, because they were really... That must have been something to behold, because nothing like that had really been done before, or on, a, on, on that level. Well, the way what was happening was, you know, Alphonse was uh, Alphonse Mizan was playing these strong grooves, and sometimes Miroslav would join him on the groove or play over the groove with the bow. Wow! That hadn't been done before. Wow! You see the bass players grooving with the drummer, and here Miroslav would play these beautiful melodies with the bow. A lot of times, unison with Wayne on soprano. 
And and Joe on piano would play these really wide chords, very wide voices. So he was like an orchestra on the Fender Rhodes, while Miroslav was bowing these melodies with Wayne. And sometimes when he accompanied Wayne, instead of only grooving like a normal, you know, like a normal thing was, he would uh, his comping would be these beautiful bowed lines behind Wayne. Wow. And Dom Romeo was playing percussion. So they would be grooving pretty hard. And Miroslav, before he got into his groove, was just bowing these beautiful melodies as his comp on the bass. And I don't know anybody that was doing it like that before. Wow. Not that, not that way. Mingus, Mingus played with the bow quite a bit, even from the late 50s. But that was during the freer sections or as an intro. Miroslav took it on himself, and he was a young guy, too, you know. Uh, he was in his 20s, too. He thought, well, you know, he knew he could groove as hard as anybody else, but he comped, instead of playing whatever the groove was, he, his background was an arco background. He wanted to be part uh, of an orchestral thing, like Joe was. And then eventually he'd start playing pizzicato and groove along. Um, so, totally. So it was like a... a, a... I don't want to say an individual voice. Uh, he was also playing, because, I mean, Scotty LaFaro had an individual voice, but but Miroslav was on electric, right? Well, he only did a couple tunes on electric. Uh, okay. was on string bass. Okay, yeah, so I, I've seen... So it was on, at that time especially. I'm just wondering if that sort of... I think... I, I'm wondering if, if any of their live stuff got recorded in a way that would do justice to, the, to that band. You know, there's a... I don't know about any live released records, but there is a video of that band from a small gig somewhere. It's online somewhere. Somebody turned me onto it. And it's that exact band. Wow. And that's the way they're playing. But it was before they became, you know, a well-known weather report. It was before that. Right. Right. I'm curious. Yeah. Exactly. The well-known weather report. I'm saying that was pretty amazing that you, uh, you caught that. I mean... This other, I, I was up in Boise with my family over over Christmas, the holiday, and uh, you know, I ran. I'm I'm going through this record store, and it's like so amazing because it hasn't been picked through, and there's just a lot of like really weird, random records that you know, big sets of of you know people's collections, and so there's a lot of like jazz in there, and I pull out John Stowell. Uh, the guitar player, John, uh, John Stoll. Uh, oh, yeah. And, uh, like, at that point, like, can you talk about how you got connected with that session and also, like, ultimately your relationship with uh, Jim Fields and Inner City, Muse, because you made your first solo records on there. Yeah, it was released on there. You know, one thing that was interesting about uh, John Stoll's record was Dom Romeo was playing percussion on it. Uh, so, exactly, Weather Report again. Uh, so, and the first, one of the first things I did in the studio was say, man, I saw you with Weather Report. <laughs> that was also oh, different, because he was, was he playing like a small kit too, or just percussion? Uh, it was just percussion on the record that I did with him. No, no, I mean like, because I remember Greg Rico, who played some gigs with Miroslav in Weather Report, Said that Damu Murmao would come on. They would went to Japan together, and 
Dom would bring a little 18-inch bass drum. He'd play a little kit next to a Rico's kit. I don't remember that. I just remember he had a lot of percussion. Right, okay. So that was the other thing that was very cool was just that that was the same era as like Ayerto and Buck Clark and all those guys, all that percussion, you know? Exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Anyway. Um, so you were like, wow, I saw you back at the Gaslight. Yeah. Uh, now, I forget when, when I did John's record. That's 78. 78. So right around that time, I was doing one or two record dates a week in New York. I was doing a lot of recording. And because I was still with Stan, I think, at the time, and Jack, and Hubert Laws' band, so I was pretty high profile. And John, I think, had seen me play with one of those guys. And uh, asked me to do his record, and I think we were doing some, we might have been doing some duo gigs around New York. And and I met with John Stahl, too. He had this, his, uh, he had a different style of playing than traditional jazz guitar. He held his guitar differently, he held the neck closer to his neck. Um, it was more, um, he had different type of voices. Well, let me tell you something. I went to do a video interview with him that has been taken down from Facebook for some reason. He almost hugs the guitar. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It's all totally unique. That's exactly it. Yeah. And uh, so I remember uh, enjoying uh, the music. And he wrote beautiful tunes, too, but it was uh, not a traditional bebop thing at all. He had his own style of playing. I haven't seen John for years, but I remember uh, enjoying myself on the record. And uh, I don't think too many people know about that recording. Not a lot of copies were pressed. I feel blessed to have it. I'm, I'm, I mean, it definitely has, like, you know, I think du- dual guitars on it. Um, anyway, it just, it like... Uh, can you talk about making your the, the sort of satisfaction of, of if if that was something that at a certain point when you decided it was time for you to, to be a leader of, on an album? Uh, that was another happenstance too. Totally. And nothing's ever been. There's been no no nothing no uh, no uh, premonitions ever. Just always happenstance. my first record I was in it was like 77 or 78 of a solo record I had just finished a Stan Getz concert in uh, Stockholm and somebody came over to me after the gig and said I'd like you to make a record for me and it was actually no I have to remember the name of the company yeah I mean it, it, I, th- I was pretty sure I mean I'm sure it got eventually released I was just interested in this whole idea of, uh, <clears throat> I'm just, just, uh, dream waves. Well, that, that was the record, yeah, but it was originally on a company from... Was, was it Steeplechase? Well, it was released on the inner city in the United States. Right. And then in Europe, it was on a different label. I can't remember the label right now, but it was based out of Oslo. So, uh... Uh, so Inner City released it over here and then a, you know, a few months later I was you know, doing another gig and after a gig in uh, Copenhagen uh, Neil DeWinter who owns Steeplechase asked me if I'd like to do a, a record it was a few months after the first record 
And I always said yes. And that was 1977 or 78, right around that time. So, you know, people just came over to me and said, I'd like you to do a record for me. And I always had music when I was on the road. And I always had tunes to record just to be safe. And so now this is my, I guess, 40, 50 year, 46 year of recording for Nils on Steeplechase. As a matter of fact, my last cello CD is coming out in two or three weeks. Steeplechase. Uh, is it really? Uh, is it solo cello or is it? Is there other people? I have a band. Uh, it's a great band uh, with uh, Andy Laverne on piano. Oh. Uh, 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 Jay Anderson on bass and Anthony Pinciotti on drums. And uh, I don't play in cello, solo cello. And it's called Turn Out the Stars. It's the newest cello scene. But this is my 45th or 46th years, years with... Uh, with Nils on Steeplechase. But people would come over to me and ask me to make records. And, and uh, I think a lot of that has to do with getting the vibe that I learned from Jimmy and my, you know, my classical teacher at Arian. Seeing the cats play, seeing Train and Miles and all the cats play, you internalize when you're... I'm sure people listen to it and they don't internalize but I try to internalize what they were feeling. And over the course of your lifetime as a musician, that comes out in your playing with the instrument you're holding. And then people can feel that you have this more spiritual way of approaching music. And they're not hiring you because you have a lot of technique or this and that. They like the vibe you're putting out. And I think I learned quite a bit uh, from watching the cats play, definitely from listening to the records. But from watching the cats play, I mean, I saw a train play. So when you're watching train play, uh, it's, it's 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 difficult to describe. It's really hard to describe. Well, I mean, just I mean, it's just the only way I can say it is just you know, it's like sheets of sound, and uh, you know, Kenny Barron said he'd watch them play for 40 minutes straight and they wouldn't repeat one idea, you know? Um, you know, a <clears throat> couple things. Did you, did you see, uh, a young Pat Martino in, in Philly? Uh, I did. And also I remember one time, actually I was there with Chico. This was in 73. Right. And, uh, I was at, uh, I spent an afternoon before the gig at Pat's house. And, uh, and he was basically speaking theoretically about his cycle. He had this cycle of fifths that he talked about all the time. And he took out his chart. It looked like uh, he was taking out a chart of the universe. Pat, <laughs> <laughs> dude. Oh, my God. Now, I forget. There's a name for the chart that he had. Right. I don't remember the name. It was Cycle of Fifths. No, dude, Eddie Harris was obsessed with Cycle of Fifths. I can't believe you're telling me this right now. It's insane. Uh, but he took out this chart, and it was this big circle, and he would point out on the chart a, a, his idea of playing, even though, you know, a lot of us coming from that period of time were beboppers. He had another very theoretical way of thinking about it. But the whole afternoon, he was just talking about his theory of playing. Uh, wow! No, I was going to say the, the band that I'm. There was a. Uh, I don't know if you ever crossed paths with the great saxophone player Odeon Pope. Well, 
play with him at the time. No, yeah. well, I was. It's just you know what was interesting is that there the band that he wound up recording with uh, quite a bit uh, was a Philly based band, Tyrone Brown. Did you know Ty? Do you know Ty Brown? I knew him in Philly. Sure. Is he still with us? By the way. He did. Yeah, no, because I, I I did an amazing interview with him, and I just had no idea what happened to him. Yeah, he stayed. He never left Philadelphia. I. Um, he was I, a great player, man. You know, I think at one point there was a band that Max Roach put together, right? And I think Tyrone was playing in it. Well, Odin Odin was in it definitely. I. I that had to be late 60s, early 70s, right around that time. And Ty, Tyrone Brown was in his band. Are you sure about that? Well, I know Odin and Pope was playing in it. Right, right. I, I thought there were more Philly guys. I don't remember exactly right now. But um, Did yeah, you know, Sher- did you did you go see Sherman and uh, and Eddie Green and those? Did you know, those guys to me were like, the most salt. Of the, I know that, it, I know you were getting on with your career and, and stuff as well, but like, to me, like, when I think of Philadelphia, I think of that band, that Catalyst band. Well, as a matter of fact, it's funny you mention that, but also I ran it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought about this in a long time, 50 years ago. Um, there was a gig, guitar, bass, and drums. I think Sherman was playing drums. But, oh, my God. He was playing guitar, and we had a gig at, there was a Philadelphia Jazz Festival. Wait, who was playing guitar? Uh, the guitar player you just mentioned. Uh, well, Eddie Eddie Green was piano player. Oh, Eddie. Um, no, there was another Green. I don't know who that is. Okay, anyway, so it was guitar. Who was the guitar player? You and Sherman. And what year is this? This is sick. Seventy-two. Oh my! Oh my God! Anyway, that time. Anyway, there was. Um, we had this gig. I think the guitar player. He might have played some, a little bit with Jimmy Smith, too. I'm spacing out his name right now. But when you mentioned Sherman, anyways, we were playing at a stadium in Philadelphia, a football stadium called Memorial Stadium, which they renamed, I think it was JFK Stadium at the time. It was the original Memorial Stadium. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 totally. That, that's, not a, that's not a small place. Yeah, uh, well, you know, it seated 100,000 people. And... Uh, and that's what they used to play the Army and Navy game years ago, you know, a long time ago. Wow. Anyways, we're in the middle of the field, the football field, and I had my little <laughs> B-15 amp, you know, my Ampeg B-15 amp. And we're in the middle of the field, and the sound man for the stadium didn't like the guitar amp or the bass amp. So we're in the middle of the field of this big stadium, and we're playing jazz, and nobody heard us. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean that—that that is the most bizarre. That is such a bizarre story. Dude. And, I, and I remember we were looking at each other because nobody was applauding, nobody was giving any positive or negative response. And we got, you know, they wheeled us off the middle of the field, and nobody heard and nobody played. So when you mentioned Green, there was a guitar player. I think it played a thing with Green too, but I'm pretty sure. I don't know. We're gonna have to check that. I mean, the only—I—I the, the, I just can. I would love to. And you're you're playing in what was it a festival? I mean, this is the most bizarre gig ever. Yeah, it was a jazz festival, but, it, and they held it at Memorial Stadium. Why? Uh, yeah. He didn't I like think, the guitar, so it was just Sherman just drumming away. I think Sherman was playing drums, yeah. And uh, 
I haven't seen him in years. I haven't seen him in a long time. It's funny we're talking about this. I haven't thought about that in 50 years. But well, no, Sherman's, he left us too. Well, I want, to, I want to read you this story, and then you can tell me if this is, has ever happened to you, okay? Uh, this is from uh, these memoirs that I'm working on with the drummer from the Blackbirds, Keith Kilgo, the drummer. He said, uh, the first gig I played with Joe Henderson was in Philadelphia at the Aqua Lounge on Marcus Street. My father said, okay, where's the money? You ain't taking my baby out unless he's getting paid. He's talking to Joe Henderson. My father was a military guy, so I asked my dad to take me to Philadelphia. When the sign said, Welcome to Philadelphia, he put my ass out on the highway with my drums and my little Korean girlfriend. He said, You didn't tell me to take you to the club. You said, Take me to Philadelphia. He left. He didn't give a shit. I had 13 bucks, so I got a cab. I took a cab to the Jamaican Inn, Red Flags. The bottom line of the door... Um, Basically, the bottom line, I take a cab. Mind you, I ain't got a dime. I spent the $13 I had to get to the Jamaican Inn. Uh, they call me, they say, Mr. Kilgo, Mr. Henderson's on the phone. I don't have any money, so he sends the money down to pay the cab driver. I'm carrying a full set of drums, bass drum, snare drum, tom, cymbals, hi-hat, the old Kenny Clark joint with the wheels on it. You can put the cymbals in the seat in the middle with the little tray on the top. I'm in here trying to get, trying to get it done. Uh, in any event, he, he gets to the show. He's on the bandstand, Pete Yellen, Joe Henderson, Woody Shaw, Tony Waters, Hal Galper, myself. Stanley Clark was playing bass, but Stanley was in school, so he took the gig at night, took the train back. He was going back and forth, and they were all playing with Art Blakey. Uh, first night was about going about 125 miles an hour. I'm playing through the shit. Pete Yellen, Joe, Woody, I'm on splinters at this moment. They give me a drum solo, and they all put their their instruments on the stand and went to the bar. They let they left my ass out there. First of all, I couldn't even move my right arm. My right arm was stuck. It was stuck, and the song was so goddamn fast. I was my playing was gone, and the worst part, there was a freaking mirror right across from the bandstand. You're looking at yourself dying. That was my first night. Nobody said a word to me. I I mean. I'm not saying it was just sort of trial by fire. Did I mean, did you have any kind of... It sounds to me like your trial by fire was, you know, being stared down by Mingus while you're playing with Chico. I guess you passed your test. You know, and to back it up a little bit, I remember when Stanley did that gig, because <clears throat> we were in school together. He had the same teacher. Wow. Uh, he, had, he had Mr. Arian also for a while. Oh, he did? Yeah, we were in school. We were in different schools in Philadelphia, but we knew each other. In the Philly scene. <clears throat> and Stanley studied with uh, Ed Arian, too. And, but I remember when Stanley did the gig, because uh, I remember when he did the gig. At the Aqua Lounge. Yeah, that, and the Aqua Lounge was, I think, I think it was on market in West Philadelphia, towards West Philadelphia. Right. No, I'm like, Richmond's going to know this, this venue, dude. Because, I mean, Keith was just young, man. But his dad was real connected to... Uh, Andrew Hill and the Washington D.C. Cats. So when Keith saw some talent, anyway, the point is that he was. It, it's yeah. I mean, that to me was like part. And then eventually, you know, Keith's on the road with Joe Henderson for thirty years. And I mean, Byrack told me, you know, Stan, he's like Stan could be your your loving uncle, and then he could be the biggest asshole to you. You know, I mean, I'm I'm just wondering, like, was there ever sort of like that sort of, you know, that that moment, you know, for in your career? Well, 
definitely had happened on Chico's gig, one of the first gigs we did. We're working in New York, and they did some tune. I forget the tune, but it was one of these tunes, you know, 300 to the quarter notes had the tune, very, <laughs> very, very fast. And and we're about to take the tune out, and I, I thought it was it was after, uh, just just before the out head, and that same thing, everybody stops playing bass solo. <laughs> <laughs> it's up, you're on it, baby. You know, at that point, my hands were falling off, and... And that's when I used to play with high action, you know, sure. harder. I played a lot harder than I play now. And my hands were killing me, you know. And then they wanted to see if I deserved to be on the kick. And they did the same thing. And I, I don't know what I played, but I got through it. And, and uh, But that Chico did that, too. He would do that all the time. He'd put you on the spot. And that was at the very beginning. And a lot of those cats would do that. What was the rationale behind that, especially in terms of the, just the whole aesthetic of what I think of when I hear the word jazz? Well, especially if you're a young guy, they want to see if you could really play and if you deserve to be there. Right. So right. I would just close my eyes uh, and I don't know what I play. <laughs> That's the best, man. Uh, oh my God, that's the best. What happened to me with Chico, who worked in some place in New York, and uh, Arnie Lawrence was playing saxophone on the kid. Sure. And I went over to Arnie after this set, and I said, you know, I got to tell you, you cats have to get a real bass player. I said, I have no idea, no idea what you guys are doing. And he said, you know, there's a thousand things, because they just played some tempos I had never played before. Right. And... Uh, like soup, like thought, everything was like super high, high tempo. Uh, like or some, was, some of the tunes were pretty fast. Some tunes, you know, you know, we would do Forest Flower and the Charles Lloyd Road, right? And tunes like that that were easier to play. But we would do some pretty up tempo tunes, and Chico would always give me a solo in these up tempo tunes. And more often than not, he everybody would stop playing. And, but I remember the first time it happened, I went over to Arnie and said, after the gig, I'm going to tell Chico to hire a real bass player. He said, you know, this is rough. He said, are you serious? There's a thousand bass players in New York right now that want this gig. You can't quit it yet. <laughs> <laughs> it was, at the time, it was one of the best gigs. He said, you don't quit a gig when you have a gig. Right, right, right. If Chico's firing you, that's one thing. But, you know, you don't walk away from that. No, you never quit a gig. And, Unfortunately, I've never been fired, but uh, but I remember. No, just I mean that's perfect. They just let left you up there, and you're holding, you're closing your eyes, and just you don't even know what you played, but you know what, it's going to sound good anyway. I mean that's the way it is, and I, you know, that's my sort of my hope for, you know, for cats to loosen up naturally, as the sons of Champlin, so you know, said, you know, and just sort of be free and and be be your authentic self, and and you know, and and. It may not make you. I mean, I know you got to you got to sing for your supper, but you know it's important for people to. It's okay to. I, I just feel like that was so um, emblematic of you know the Dizzy Gillespie that group of guys. You know, it was just it was about you know not taking yourself that seriously, taking what you do very seriously, but really having your own voice and and being and walking to the beat of your own drum and it really rubbed off on uh 
you know, on, on society and, and, and tolerance and culture, I think, at that time, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, with those type of gigs, it was either sink or swim. And, uh, right. you know, years later, many years later, I don't really agree with this, but uh, people would take their little kids and their babies and throw them in pools just to teach the kids how to swim. No, I never did that with my son. But I remember years ago, 40 years ago, people were starting to do that. And were, no, I never, never did that with my son. No, uh, no, I, honestly, uh, that... that that uh, thankfully I haven't seen a lot of people doing that these days. But I mean, uh, that was the for a while, forty years ago, that people were doing that, and I thought, you know, it was not. It was a little more dangerous than being on the bandstand. But uh, but when I first started uh, started hearing about that with parents, I thought, well, that's what it's like when you're playing a fast tempo. Everybody stops playing. You have to play a 15 minute. Thing, so. <laughs> you got you got to figure out if you can swim. Yeah, that's right. But at least you know, if, even if you if fall on your ass, at least you go home and you're still breathing and alive. You know, you're not drowning to death. You know, to use the analogy of the swim thing. Well, you never fall on your ass when you're doing this gig. You always you always come out on the positive side of it. Um, hmm. But you you always come up with something to play. You know, um, you know, going back to Chico too. Uh, the very first rehearsal, I had no idea who we were going to play, and I show up and I said, uh, what, are, what are we playing? And he said, well, what did you bring? <laughs> yeah, those guys were always looking for tunes, man. He never, uh, and that's when he, he forced me to start writing. Wow. And I started writing a, a lot of music at that point. Uh, but I remember when he said, well, what did you bring? I said, I didn't bring anything. We'll have something to play. Yeah, what do you, if if you want to play something, then bring something. So, so, you know, from the next rehearsal, I started writing a lot of tunes. Yeah, that's how it went. But Chico, you know, Chico was a real teacher in addition to being a drummer. Absolutely, man. The the dude was driving, let, you know, Dennis Budimer in a mixed race band across the country. Back in the mid, you know, in the mid '60s, you know, he played with Little Feet. On top of that, he just—he had his own—he had his own personal uh, service. He was like—he was one of the first. He was a forerunner in, in business for a person of color too. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was—he was a real businessman too. Real businessman, and obviously, like, because I think those are practices on the bandstand that you would do in business too, in terms of putting you on the like sink or swim giving you some freedom to prove that you belong, you know, and it's just, it goes hand in hand, but those, you know, I, when's your next, what, what, you have any gigs coming up, Mike? Uh, no live gigs. I'm staying home at this point for the most part. I'm staying home. Um, I have some recordings coming up. Uh, I always have another one of my solo recordings. <laughs> so preparing music for that. And these days it's usually, on cello, Chris Steeplechase for Neil's Winters. Uh, Andy Laverne just emailed me about a record they were going to do in two or three weeks. I gotta, I'm going to reach out to Laverne for an interview. I love that. I mean, I was going to say, what is it? What, what, when did you first meet Andy Laverne? In the early 70s, I met Andy at a jam session in New York. And then a year or two after that, Stan, at that point I was with Stan Getz, 
75, right around 75. And Joanne Brockian was playing piano with Stan. And she, uh, we were working in, at that club in Washington, D.C. The Bohemian Caverns? Not Bohemian Caverns, the, um, oh, I forget the name of it. But we were working at the club. And anyway, she got a call <coughs> after the gig that her father was very sick in L.A. So she had to fly out to L.A. And uh, Stan asked me if I could get him a piano player. So I, I called Andy in New York and got Andy to gig with Stan. Oh, my God. That is, dude, Stan is looking down on us right now, man. I spent four nights in his Irvington estate, man, with Monica. I, I, I just love that, that Laverne. It's, it, it, what, that must have been classic, dude. Laverne must have been freaking out. He had never played with Stan before. Well, no, he hadn't worked with Stan, but we had a year before that been on Woody Herman's band together, the big band. Wow. So we got along pretty well on, on Woody's band and became friends. And uh, and I called Andy. I said, "You got to come down to the gig tonight. Stan needs a piano player. Joanne's in L.A. with her father. Her father's real sick." And uh, uh, so then Andy stayed in the band after that for a few years. What, was it Billy Hart on drums? Who was playing drums? Billy Hart. Yeah, Billy Hart was playing drums. That's so beautiful. Jabali, you, Laverne, and Getz. And that band stayed together for a few years, actually. Uh, yeah, that was... And the same thing with Andy. Uh, you know, he had his book, Stan had all the music, and Andy just read the tunes down on the gig. You know, uh, some of the old... You know, some older tunes, some newer tunes that Chick had just written. Right. He had been playing with Chick. And, um, yeah, so we just did... You know, so Andy, same routine. You know, when you join a band, there's almost no rehearsals when you join a band. Once in a while, but not that often. You usually just jump, you join them on the road somewhere, and you just read the book down. They throw the music in front of you. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, I'm talking about games like that. Um, you know, years later, I played with Benny Golson, who joined his band. And I remember meeting them for a concert. It's on YouTube, actually, too. In Searson, Germany, there was a jazz festival. And I had just gotten in from the airport, and I was in Cairo the night before with another group. Oh. I was in Egypt. And I remember, you know, showing up at the hotel and going right to the gig. And same thing, you're backstage. And I didn't have a bass with me. And I was using uh, Gary Peacock's bass. I was playing opposite Gary. And Gary gave me his bass. And Benny just started calling me too. <laughs> 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 you know, I had seen Benny play also when I was in college, when he was with Art Farmer, when they had their band together. And, uh, you know, and I loved Benny. And all of a sudden, same thing. Uh, and those older guys never told you what they were going to play. <laughs> <laughs> I love that shit, dude. They were just all tunes. You know, and hopefully you knew... You know, because they knew 50,000 songs, 150,000 songs, and I might have known a few thousand tunes, but they knew every tune. And you just hope to God you came up with the right changes. <laughs> and all those cats were like that. Um, uh, uh, you know, for you know, years before that, I played with uh, Bill Jackson. And every tune for the first two weeks was, he'd get over to the piano player, 
and tell him the title to the tune and whisper the title. <laughs> and then he turned around to me, and every tune he came off with, one, two, you all know what to do. <laughs> they would tell me the title of the tune or the key. And you just filter your way through the tunes. Clark Terry was like that. He never told you a title. Um, those cats just wanted to see, even after you had done quite a few gigs, you were on the scene for a while. They just wanted to see if you could, because they were usually older than me. They just wanted to see if you really knew what they knew. And, uh, you know, I can't say I like playing like that. You know, Roland Hanna was like that, too. Yeah, well, I mean, there's something, that, to me, it just, it, it reinforces the, just the aesthetic of what I feel is like what serious jazz is, which is just reacting in the moment, you know, and sinking or swimming, but actually like realizing that you're treading water and then you actually can begin to enjoy it. Like that to me is like the, the seriousness and then crafting like a beautiful soul or being part of the conversation. I think that's the ultimate thing. And it's funny, you know, uh, that that spontaneity would carry over for, to the audience, and I—that's I, I, such—it's sorely missing today. You'll never see. I just—you will not. You, I mean, I just haven't been to a show in a long time. Doesn't matter what genre, where there's not a set list, and uh, that to me is like, you know, it's it's a little bit petrifying for people, but. That's part of the entertainment value. And and to me, like, if you guys have trust together, and I'm talking as a leader, the leader seems to, to need to rely on the the structure and the format. And part of it's like it was just a looser context and you're playing in, you know, clubs and, you know, there's not really, you didn't have a time limit per se. You guys could play three sets, four sets, you know, and get really get into it. But that, that, um, sort of, uh, you know, Max Roach uh, said no music on the bandstand. You, you look over a group like the Grateful Dead, they they, did, they didn't have set lists for a long time because that to them was just boring, you know? Yeah. You know, some, you know some, of the, some of the band leaders, you know, Horace Silver, even Stan, you know, they had their sets. No, Horace, they, I know that everyone had, yeah, I, I'm with you. You know, just it's like the Benny Golson thing, you know, it's like, Nobody's asking you if you're tired flying in from Egypt. It's like, get out there, fucking play, dude. Like, whatever. And then you better know the tunes, you know? Well, the thing is, when you're on the road, when you're doing 31-nighters in 31 days, you're always tired. So, you know, nobody even cares if you're tired. You're always sick in the stomach. You're always tired. Mm. You have to go, as soon as you get on stage, you have to make music. Uh, you just have to play music. Uh, yeah. It's beautiful. Uh, you know, Mike Richmond, another 71 minutes in the books, man. Well, we're definitely going to have to do set three. Okay. Yeah, always a pleasure, man. Let's uh, let's stay in touch, man. It's great to hear your voice. It's good to hear your voice, too. Uh, and stay healthy, too. Uh, we'll talk next. There's so much more to cover, but it's good to talk to you. Yeah, everybody. Yeah, man. Be cool. We'll talk soon. Okay, you take care. Later. Okay.